الحمد لله الحمد لله وكفى والصلاه والسلام على عباده الذين اصطفى اما بعد فاعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم من المؤمنين رجال صدقوا ما عاهدوا الله عليه فمنهم من قضى نحبه ومنهم من ينتظر وما بدلوا تبديلا صدق الله العظيم most respected of my kiram brothers and elders as one mentioned short while ago that in the zikr salihin tanzil ar-rahma that when the pious are mentioned the rahmat of allah taala descends inshallah we have hope that with the barakat of the discussion of a very great personality of his time Maa Sayyid Hussain Ahmad Madni Rahmatullah Ali Inshallah our hearts will be inspired to also try to emulate these great personalities in some way and this is the object and the purpose of discussing these personalities of Islam on many different occasions the various personalities from the Sahaba Ikram were discussed and then the personalities that followed thereafter from the tabi'in etc some of those luminaries were discussed in various venues and today we have the personality of sayyidina of hazrat maulana sayyid hussain ahmad bandi rahmatullah alay from one angle this is something very significant for us that at a time when in south africa let alone in any particular town itself in entire south africa there were barely a handful of ulama ikram and in the whole of kzn there perhaps were less than 10 ulama ikram in the whole of kzn and some of the ulama ikram who were present at that time they had a very very tough time in fulfilling their task of imparting the deen of establishing the deen of allah taala and some of these ulama were the direct students of said of hazrat ma husain ahmaduddin rahmatullah alayhi so in this regard we are very much indebted to him then sitting here in newcastle in particular the darloom mashallah that we have in this town the amir of the darloom from its inception was maulana abdul haq umar ji sahab rahmatullah alai so he was instrumental in the forming of the darulum together with hazrat mas qasim sema sahab rahmatullah alai and the various other ulama that were involved at the time hazrat maulana abdul haq umar ji sahab rahmatullah alai was also the direct student of us maulana hussain ahmad bandi rahmatullah alai so in that way we can see the effects of his efforts that in this little place that we are sitting in just with one person in between his benefit has reached here as well so this is something that we will inshallah benefit from by hearing some things about his life may allah taala give us a tawfeeq that we can bring that same spirit into our lives that he possessed some portion of it also for the sake of allah tabaarak wa taala sarah so maulana hussain ahmad badi rahmatullah is concerned he was a very unique personality unique in the sense that it was not so common that one person would be at the forefront of almost every field of deeni khidmat you would get somebody who is very much involved in one line and his entire day and night is engrossed in that line of khidmat somebody in another line and everybody would be part and parcel of all the khidmat of deen but to a limited extent apart from that particular line of khidmat that he was involved in or we come to maulana husain ahmad bandi rahmatullah alayhi on the one side he was the sheikh al hadith of darulum deoband the mother institute which became the fountain head of the knowledge spreading far and wide and hundreds of thousands of institutions if you count all the makatib and all the madaris put together in the indo pak subcontinent and then in many almost every part of the world 
you'll find madaris that are linked eventually to Darulam Deoband. If you count every small maktab and madrasa that is already final, also finally linked in that way, it will amount to several hundred thousand, if not more. So on the one hand, he is the Sheikh al-Hadith of this institution. Then at the same time, he is a Sheikh al-Tariqat, person who has a very, had a very large following, thousands of people who were referring to him for their spiritual guidance and for Islah and Tazkiyah. So he was conducting the Dini Majalis for them and attending to their needs, to their correspondence, going from place to place to advise them. Together with that, he was a person who was very much involved in the social affairs of people. There's some problem somebody has, some other issues, there's some natural disasters as we call them, some problem somewhere of that nature. He would be at the forefront of trying to bring relief to the people. Then on the political level, here again, for the safeguarding of Islam and the Muslims in India, he was at the forefront of the effort to oust the British who had colonized India at the time and were doing everything that they could to try and destroy Islam and the Muslims. Madni was at the forefront of this effort to oust the British as well. Now this is the point that we are just talking about that he was at the forefront of this effort to oust the British without understanding a little bit about India at that time and the British rule in India at that time it's not possible to appreciate what he had done for the Islam and the Muslims in the subcontinent and also to truly understand what went on at the time. So therefore it's going to be important that we just go a little bit back in history and just very briefly take a snapshot so to say of what was happening in India at the time. India before the British came in was an extremely wealthy place and for a long time the Muslims ruled over India. So in any case the British very very slyly came in as traders under the name of the East India Trading Company and under this name they came and first settled established base in a few cities only but this was just the front. The agenda was something else. The British at that time had colonized almost a quarter of the world. And approximately one-fifth of the world population was under British rule in their colonies. Whether it was South Africa, whether it was Canada, whether it was far-flung places like New Zealand, Kenya, many other places they boasted about it at one time that in the British Empire the sun never sets. But when people make claims, then Allah Ta'ala shows them that your claims are nothing. So in any case, as part of this agenda of theirs, this was the method they used to try and get into India. Unfortunately, at that time, the condition of Muslims was not so well established in terms of their deen. Unfortunately, this is what happens when people end up becoming lax, and being in the lap of luxury, they tend to take things for granted and start forgetting what is their main purpose in life. They start forgetting what is their direction. They start making the dunya their objective. And when that happens, that when deen becomes something that will come along, but dunya is the main thing in life, then that is a very dangerous moment. And that is when all these kind of situations unfortunately come about. So they came in and in a short while they started expanding and finally the time came when they had gained a lot of control over many things in the on government level and they began looting the country before the british came to india once just in one area in the time of alamgir rahmatullahi when he just came onto the throne of india so he instructed that an audit must be conducted in just two places. An audit of the treasury in Agra and Delhi. Now we are talking about two cities only in this huge country that is the undivided India of that time. 
for the audit of these two treasuries of Delhi and Agra, there were about more than 3,000 people employed to do this job. 3,000 people. They carried on for six months. After six months, he wanted to know what was going on. They said, well, we have only completed a portion still. And the portion is still a very small portion. It's still much more. Because they had to, in that time was the silver had to be weighed and the gold had to be weighed and counted and whatever else. There was so much wealth in India at that time that these several thousand people were employed just to order the two treasuries of these, this city, these two cities only. And six months they had only done a fraction. He said, okay, hold the audit now, fine, we don't need to go further. This was the extent of wealth that was there in India at the time. When the British came in and barely some time later, a decade or so later, India was regarded as a poverty-stricken country. They came and eventually colonized the place. Even on a worldly level, they came and replaced all the positions that were in government, etc., with people from Britain. In the education system, they moved everything out so that the Indians would be cut off from the education, all the skills, etc. And in this way, they colonized the place and they also started massacring, committing massacre of the people as well. But this is where the issue started, that when this happened and the British started spreading their tentacles, together with this, they brought in a lot of missionaries. And this was the agenda to turn India into a Christian country. And these missionaries, there were many, many debates that all of our Kiram had at the time with various missionaries and some of these debates are recorded. So in any case, when this started happening, Shah Abdul Aziz Rahmatullah Ali at that time, he gave the fatwa that India is no more a Muslim country, meaning under Muslim rule. It's no more under Muslim rule. This has become Darul Kufr and now jihad must be waged against the British. When he passed this fatwa, there was this uprising that took place at the time and the great personalities of the time, Sayyid Ahmad Shaheed Rahmatullah Shah Ismail Shaheed Rahmatullah many other very senior personalities of the time, they took up this and there were many battles that took place with the British on several fronts. But unfortunately, whatever Allah Ta'ala world at the time, this continued till 1831. But by 1831, unfortunately, all of my kiram were overwhelmed, outnumbered, and the British succeeded in stemming this and in stamping out this uprising. Some time passed, then in 1857, in Shamli, under the leadership of Hazrat Hadi Imdadullah Muhajir Makki the great personalities of the time then, the likes of Hazrat Ma Qasim Nanuti Rahmatullah Hazrat Maulana Rashid Ahmad Gangui many, many other giants of the time actively participated in the jihad of the time to oust the British who were doing everything in their control that they could to try and destroy Islam and the Muslims, destroy the country as well and loot the place. They looted everything. They looted what today is known as part of the crown jewels, the Kohinoor diamond, 168 carat diamond. They stole it and took it away still not returned. This is just one example of what they looted from India. So in any case, this jihad took place again, there was this uprising again, but again the Muslims could not succeed on the battlefront as such. 200,000 Muslims were martyred. Out of these 200,000 Muslims that were martyred, 51,000 ulama were martyred. After this happened, they analyzed the situation and their own agent said to them, there was one doctor, William Yur, he submitted a report and in his report he stated that of the entire population of India, because the Hindus were also revolting against the British, but he said, look, in reality it's only the Muslims that were against us. Nobody else had any courage to do anything. Nobody else came and faced us up. Yes, they don't want us here, but they got no guts and no courage to come anywhere. The Muslims were the ones that were in the forefront of the battles against us. 
And therefore, he came to this conclusion that the Muslims were in the forefront and their ulama were the ones who had given them that leadership. If we want to gain dominance in this place, we want to remain here, this can only be achieved if we eradicate the Qur'an and we eradicate the ulama. This was the report this person gave and this was sent to the viceroy and this was then discussed in wherever it was discussed and on this advice in 1861 one of the things that they did that they started collecting all the Qur'ans wherever they could find it sending people into any masjid sending 300,000 copies of the Qur'an Sharif were collected and Billah burned but it was at this time when somebody realized what they are up to that he said you can carry on trying what you want to do you can never destroy the Qur'an Sharif. He said, but why? So he called one little child. And he said, ask him to read. And to their shock and amazement, they found this child could recite the whole Qur'an Sharif. Anywhere you ask him, he was a hafiz of the Qur'an Sharif. And they never knew that people could by heart the Qur'an Sharif. When they realized that this is an effort in vain, that they will never be able to destroy and eradicate the Qur'an. Inna nahnu nazzalna dhikr. Allah alone is the protector of the Qur'an Sharif. That's when they abandoned this particular aspect. But by that time, 300,000 copies of the Qur'an Sharif, we are talking about in that time when printing was not such a straight, simpler thing as it is now, 300,000 copies of the Qur'an Sharif were destroyed. Then, as far as the ulama of the time were concerned, there was a historian at that time, Mr. Thompson was his name, he is extensively quoted when it comes to Indian history. He was a British, uh, British agent there and he writes in his memoirs from 1864 to 1867. This is something really, really heartrending to even read but nevertheless I'm just going to read these few lines just to understand that this is, as they say, from the horse's mouth. So just to get a picture of what's going on, what went on at that time. He says the British government firmly resolved to eradicate all the ulama of India. This is their historian, Mr. Thompson, writing. That the British government resolved to eradicate all the ulama of India. These three years are one of the most heart-wrenching periods in Indian history. And Mr. Thompson is writing it heart-wrenching. Can you imagine what it was for the Muslims of the time? And anybody who had Iman, what it must have been for them? Any case, he then describes what happened. He says from Chandi Chowk of Delhi up to Khaybar Pass, a distance more than 800 kilometers. Not a single tree was spared the neck of the ulama. That is, they were hanged on almost every tree there was an alim hanged to death. The ulama were wrapped in pig skins and hurled alive into blazing furnaces. This is a Mr. Thompson writing, this is not somebody else. Their bodies were branded with hot copper rods. They were made to stand on the backs of elephants and tied to high trees. In other words, they were tied to the elephant on the one side and tied to the tree on the other side with the neck. The elephants would then be driven away by force and they would be left hanging by their necks. A makeshift gallow was set up in the courtyard of the Shahi Masjid in Lahore and each day up to 80 ulama were hanged to death. The ulama were at times wrapped in sacks and dumped into the Ravi river of Lahore, after which a hail of bullets would be pumped into each sack. Thompson further writes, As I stepped out of my camp in Delhi, I saw a blazing fire of live coals. I saw a group of 40 ulama who had been stripped naked being led into the fire. As I was witnessing the scene, another group of 40 ulama were brought onto the field. Right before my eyes, their clothes were taking off, taken off their bodies. The English commander addressed them. Oh, Malvis, just as these ulama are being roasted over this fire, you will be roasted. To save yourself, just one of you must proclaim that you were not part of the 1857 uprising of freedom. I will release all of you the moment you make this declaration. Thompson writes, by the Lord who has created me, not one of them said any such thing. All of them were roasted over the fire. And another group was also brought and roasted over the blazing fire. Not a single alim surrendered to the demands of the British. And in this way, 
Allah Ta'ala raised their stages. That these ulama gave their lives for the protection of Islam and the Muslims. And it is on that qurbani and that sacrifice that Islam survived. In any case, coming now further to the aspect that deals with our topic as such, this is a bit of the background that happened at that time. When the jihad in 1857 did not succeed in getting the British out of India, but as a result of the massacre of the ulama of the time, all the Muslim structures started collapsing. It's obvious that all the centers of deen, this will be managed and run, the, the madaris, the masajid, and all the other aspects that the ulama were managing, no, there were nobody, no people available. In such huge numbers, the ulama were massacred. As a result, all these structures and the infrastructure of deen began to collapse. That is when the ulama of the time got together and decided that something has to be done. But what is to be done? What is to be done is to prepare people who tomorrow again will be able to take up the task of managing all these centers of deen and producing people who will guide the public and fulfill all the requirements of deen. So this was the background to it. And as a result, they decided to start off Darulam Deoband. This was the concept which was in the hearts and minds of the ulama of the time for which Darulam Deoband was started. The first student of Darulam Deoband was Sheikh Ulhind Rahmatullahi. And later on he said that this happened in front of my eyes that when the ulama of the time got together and started off this Madrasa, one of the primary objectives was that what lost the Muslims suffered in 1857, this madrasa must become a means of recompensing that loss. So this was the objective and this madrasa and this Dalum was started and Hazrat Shaykh Ulhind was the first student of this madrasa and he then continued with this effort to oust the British from India. Despite whatever the challenges were, he continued with this. And his direct student was Hazrat Ma Hussein Ahmad Madni Rahmatullahi, who we are discussing. So, this is what this line brings us to him. Just a note on Hazrat Ma Hussein uh, Sheikh Ulin Rahmatullahi. He was a person of a very high caliber. Because of his involvement in the jihad of the time, the British imprisoned him as well. We will come to that just now. And under very difficult circumstances, he had to spend a lot of time there in the prison of Malta. But just one incident of his to understand the caliber of this person. We'll discuss some other aspect just now. But while he was in this in, in prison in Malta, for that period of time that he was there, every morning, every every Juma morning, every Juma morning he would wake up, he would perform, he would take ghusl, put on his best clothes that he had, apply ithar that he could have, whatever the rest of the sunnats of Jumu'ah were, he would fulfill all those sunnats of Jumu'ah. Now for Jumu'ah to be valid in a place, one of the conditions is that it must be, there must be no restriction for anybody to come and join the Jumu'ah. You cannot have Jumu'ah in a place where people are restricted to come attend the Jumu'ah. So as a result, Jumu'ah is not possible in a prison because there is no freedom to come in and go. So therefore there was no Jumu'ah valid there. But he would still take care of all these sunnats of the day of Jumu'ah. Then he would walk from the spot that wherever he was up to the cell door, which was some meters away. He would come up to the cell door, then he would turn his head and make dua and say, Ya Allah, I did what was in my capacity. Beyond this is not in my capacity to get to Jumu'ah. So now I'm, I got no other choice. He would then come back to his place and perform his Zuhar Salah. But Week in and week out, he continued to fulfill the sunnats of Jumu'ah that were in his capacity. Despite knowing that he is not going to be able to fulfill the Jumu'ah. Now can we just reflect on our condition? We have every hope that inshallah if we are alive, we will make it to the masjid, we will perform Jumu'ah. But what importance of Jumu'ah do we have in our lives? The day of Friday has come, the greatest day of the Muslims, the such great fadail and virtues of the day of Jumu'ah. And Allah Ta'ala's rahmat descends on this day in torrents and the various a'mal to be done on this day, the recitation of Suratul Kahf, excess of Durood Sharif, coming early to the masjid for Jumu'ah, sitting close to the imam, listening attentively to the khutbah and all the various other sunnats, 
person on each step gets the reward of one year's fasting and one year's standing in the night in ibadat. But what importance do we show it? So in any case, this was the caliber of people. So this is the line that brought us to Azat Mawah Hussain Ahmad Badmi Rahmatullahi. He was from a Sayyid family. The lineage went all the way up to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And he was born in 90, uh, 1296, that is 1879. His father was a very great personality himself, Sayyid Habibullah. He was an alim as well. And they were in very, very difficult circumstances. In any case, despite his natural ability at that time for a person to, who possessed a lot of talent, it was like a must that he will do something in the circular field. But his father didn't want to have anything of that. He said, my children will learn deen. And he therefore then directed him in that direction. His mother also was a very pious woman. Daily she would perform the tahajjud salah apart from the other things and engage, remain, remain engaged in dhikr and dua till the time of fajr. This is just a slight glimpse. These are the parents. The piety of the parents rubs off on the progeny. We often look at our children and complain. So yes, many other reasons could have played their role in sometimes why children are disobedient, why they are rebellious, why they are getting involved in so many other things. But sometimes it is what we are also that has also contributed to the situation. Not that that's the only reason, but something for us to also reflect on, that what is our position? In any case, Muhammad Rahmatullah he enrolled at Darulam Deoban in 1309 at the age of 13 and then he continued studying there. He was so dedicated in his studies that he would spend almost the entire night in revising his lessons, in pre preparing the lessons of the next day. He would sleep at average one hour per night. At average one hour per night he would sleep and when sleep would start overwhelming him, he would drink a cup of salty tea. Because it wasn't meant to be enjoyed, it was meant to wake, wake him up. So he drank a cup of salty tea to wake him up and continued studying. And in this way he dedicated himself to his studies and finally completed under the great luminaries of the time, such as Shaykh Ulhind Rahmatullahi, Mufti Azizur Rahman and various other luminaries of the time. He had, shortly after he graduated, his father decided that he wants to migrate to Madina Munawwara. At that time they were in the restrictions that are there nowadays. And he had this burning desire that his moth must come in Madinah Munawara. So as a result, he made this decision that together with his family, they will all migrate to Madinah Munawara. They came to Madinah Munawara with much difficulty. They made the journey. And it was very difficult. They were poverty stricken. In this, they had to do everything themselves, grind the flour themselves, wash their own clothes, go and earn a, eke out a living somewhere. He, at that time, as Madinah had five siblings. And he would often cook the food for everyone because his mother became ill. And there were times now that the food was just so much and everybody had to be fed. So he would make out equal portions. Five equal portions for himself and his brothers, sisters. So now, that was it. There wasn't anything more. We eat that and that is it. There were many occasions when his youngest brother, Mahmoud was his name, he would very quickly eat up his share because he knows what's going to be the outcome now. That This is it. And there's very little. He would eat up that whatever was his portion, his share. Quickly eat it up. Now he is the youngest, he's a child. And he start crying for more. Hazrat Ma, Badni Rahmatullahi would take his portion and give it to his youngest brother. So obviously now what he's going to have He's going to starve for the night. And there were numerous occasions that went like this. That he gave away his share to his own little brother and he spent the night hungry. This is the background of how these personalities became what they were. That they undertook these kind of sacrifices and they had this kind of heart. That heart which was filled with compassion for others, selflessness, ready to sacrifice their own needs. One is generosity. Generosity is something, mashallah, excellent. 
But generally generosity, a person has got sufficient for himself, more than sufficient for himself, and he spared some fathers also. But this is beyond generosity. One is Jude, the other is Ithar. Ithari is a person despite being in need, is giving what he needs to somebody else. He needs it himself. Okay, you have it. Like in these cases that we see. And this was the, and this is why we discuss our Kabirin, that they had embodied the Sifat of the Sahaba. Obviously nobody can compare with the ranks of the Sahaba. But the living examples of what those qualities were, in their own right, they had embodied it. In the lives of the Sahaba, we get the incident where that Sahabi, Nabi Islam said, who will take the guest? And this person brought the guest to his house. There wasn't sufficient food. And they let the guest eat and they just pretended to be eating and went to bed hungry. Kept the children hungry as well. And the next day he comes and then the ayat of the Quran Sharif comes down. That, These are the people. They give others preference over themselves, though they themselves are starving. They're in poverty. Now, these were the qualities that were embedded in these personalities. Obviously, the rank of the Sahaba, we cannot even imagine. The rest of the Ummah can get together. Nobody can, they can't reach the rank of one Sahabi. But these people also had these qualities in their own way. In any case, as then time passed, Badi Rahmatullah he also emigrated with his family to Madinah Munawwara and then he started teaching Hadith Sharif in Masjidun Nabawi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. This was the great opportunity Allah Ta'ala blessed him with, which very few people had this opportunity from the Indo-Pak subcontinent, that they had this opportunity of teaching Hadith Sharif in Masjidun Nabawi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And not for one day or one year, for 18 years he taught Hadith Sharif there. When he came in, this was the advice of his ustad that whatever it is, you have one or two students also, you continue teaching. And you ensure you teach. And this was the barakat of keeping to the advice of his ustad that when he came, he encouraged, he got one or two students and he started teaching. And obviously there was no employment here. He was just teaching for the sake of the love of Allah wa ta'ala and to impart deen. But as the time passed, others became interested in joining his halaqaim circle of dars and there were numerous circles of lessons they were continuing in the Haram Sharif at that time within a few years there was hardly anybody in any of the other groups of learning and all those students started flocking to his group Allah Ta'ala granted him that level of acceptance he would teach up to 14 lessons a day 4 to 5 lessons in the morning between the morning and Zuhar about 3 lessons in the afternoon between Zuhar and Asar Two lessons after Asar, two lessons between Asar and Maghrib, uh, between Maghrib and Isha, another one lesson after Isha. Fourteen lessons, meaning each one of a span of maybe 45 minutes each. Can we imagine? Now, this is the extent of teaching time. That amount of teaching time requires how much of preparation time? And the dedication with which he applied himself to the service of deen. And Allah Ta'ala blessed him with this opportunity right in Masjid al-Nabawi So in any case, this is how he spent his time there. Then, in that time, this effort to oust the British was still carrying on in India. And at the forefront of it was his ustad as a Sheikh al-Hind In order to try and get the help of others, he was talking to the Ottomans, at the Ottoman Empire at that time. And he came to Makkah Mukarramah to discuss further things with them. At that time, the Turks were ruling. A person by the name of Sharif Hussein, he was the governor of Makkah at that time. He became a traitor to the Muslims, unfortunately. He got to know of what's going on and he passed his message on to the British and he then colluded with them and he arrested Hazrat Sheikh Hussein Rahmatullah in Makkah Mukarramah. When Hazrat Sheikh Hussein Rahmatullah was arrested and it was now known that he's going to be imprisoned somewhere, but the Muhammad Rahmatullah was not involved in this situation at that time. When he heard about this, he came to that police station that Sheikh Hulin Rahmatullah was taken, and he gave himself in for arrest. He said, please arrest me as well. Why you want to be arrested? He said, no, I want to be in the khidmat of my ustad. 
he's an elderly person, he will not be able to manage many things on his own, so I will remain in prison with him to serve him. So he offered himself for imprisonment, so that he could be in the khidmat and service of his ustad. They were then banished to Malta with many others, which is an island about some few hundred kilometers south of Italy. There were some other few thousand prisoners on that island. Extremely cold conditions and under hard labor, they were imprisoned on this island. On this note, that we just mentioned something earlier about Sheikh Ulin, he, because he was the leader of this jihad at that time of the, against the British, so he was in particular being very brutally treated. Every night, or rather during the day, during the day they would take him away into one of the other sections of the prison and he would be lashed continuously. For a long good amount of time, at night he couldn't sleep because of the wounds. And the next day the same thing would carry on. Nobody else knew about it besides those who were there with him. And he warned everyone, day this message goes out to anybody that this is what's going on. It was only after he passed away. When he passed away, those who were giving ghusl to his body, and they were shocked at what is this? Hazrat Ali at that time, on his instruction, was gone to somewhere else for some urgent work. They asked him after he came back that what was this? He said, well, he had warned us to secrecy while he was living, we couldn't speak about it. But this was the lashing of the British. And despite all this, at one time there was a rumor that they are all going to be executed. When this message came, it was a wrong message, but in any case, at that time they didn't know it was a rumor. The rest of the companions of Hazrat Sheikh Hulin in prison, they suddenly see him sitting in deep worry and grief. They were surprised that has he been so affected by this? In any case, they thought, let us say something that will console him. They said, Hazrat, we, we came in for this. The time of Shahadat has come now. This is what we were aspiring for. So he looked up at them and he said, that is something that I am aspiring for also. Or something of that nature, he said. I am not concerned about that. I am not suddenly worried that we are going to be executed and martyred. What I am concerned about is that now this time has come to meet Allah Ta'ala. All these efforts and sacrifices were made. I am now reflecting, was it done for Allah Ta'ala? All these efforts, were they really made for Allah Ta'ala that we can now hope that inshallah will get accepted? Or was this just for some other ulterior motive and as a result it's all lost and all gone in vain. His concern now was for acceptance. Will this be accepted? And this itself is a sign of acceptance that a person is concerned about whether it's accepted or not. So in any case, Hazrat Ali himself gave himself in for imprisonment and in this difficult time, it was extremely cold. Hazrat Sheikh Muhammad Ali was an elderly person Ali would take the water, the water would be ice cold. He would take the water and fill it in the leather bag. Water for wudu. And the whole night he would put the water bag with his stomach, on his thigh, between his thigh and stomach. And he would crouch over it. And spend a good portion of the night in this way, so that by the time it's tahajjud time, and Shaykh Ali will wake up for tahajjud, it's just that the, with the body heat, the cold of the water would have gone by that time can't heat the water in any way, but with the body heat, at least that cold would have gone. Can we imagine this amount of sacrifice and khidmat? There were many, many people at that time who were also the students of Shaykh Ulhin, who had great academic uh, ability, were experts in their knowledge, but yet they didn't shine like how Mawlana Hussein Ahmad Bandi shone. And the consensus of the ulama was that this was the effect of his khidmat. The effect of his ardent khidmat that he made of his ustad, that this brought about this situation. In any case, just to... Time is really running away. While they were imprisoned in Malta, it was suddenly Ramadan. The first Ramadan came while they were in prison. And it just happened because at that time Hufas were still very few. There weren't yet many places where there were hips classes as such. There was no Hafiz. And now the Taraweeh Salah, Madhi Rahmatullah said, okay, we'll try. Every day during the course of the day he would start learning. 
And for the whole day he would learn and manage to learn one para. At night he recited the one para. He had already known one para from beforehand, perhaps the last para of the Quran Sharif. Each day he learned one para. In 29 nights, the one para he already knew, he became hafiz in that one month, in Ramadan, in, the, in prison. This was the great achievement that was Allah Ta'ala blessed him with in that situation. As far as his own situation was concerned, the kind of sacrifices he had to bear personally, on the one hand he got imprisoned in Malta, three and a half years languishing in this prison, without any idea when they will get released. This is just carrying on indefinitely. Eventually after three and a half years they got released. But in that time, while he was imprisoned in Malta, his father passed away, two of his brothers passed away, his sister passed away while travelling to Madinah Munawara from some point, his mother passed away, his wife passed away. It was an empty home. He had left, when he left Madinah Munawara, he left a house full of people. In the three and a half years that he was in Malta, there was nobody left at home. Can we imagine the situation? In any case, finally he came just to move on. On the instruction of his ustad, he finally came back to India. Because India needed a person of his caliber. The Muslims were really in a dire situation. Islam was being suppressed. And this was still happening that the British were trying their utmost to wipe out Islam from India. So he decided that that mission of his ustad as Sheikh Ulhin he will continue with this mission. And Sheikh Ulhin came back from the prison of Malta, he gathered all the ulama. And he said to them, sitting in that prison, I learned two lessons. They were shocked. This great personality sitting in prison, he learned two lessons, what he learned. So they were all ears to hear what he learned. He said, one aspect I learned, meaning after pondering a lot, that what is the bottom line of what is the what are the reasons for the downfall of the Muslims? See, one thing that I understood and learnt in this is that the reason for the downfall of the Muslims is they have abandoned the Quran Sharif. They have abandoned the Quran Sharif, and that is why I decided in prison already that the Quran Sharif has to be brought alive. While in prison, he wrote and compiled the tafsir of the Quran Sharif in Urdu. Can we imagine what resources he had there? But an authentic tafsir which the ulama have hailed tremendously, he wrote that, the tarjuma of the Quran Sharif actually, he did that while in prison. And then he said that in order to bring the recitation of the Quran Sharif alive, in every nook and corner we need to establish makatib. So the words of the Quran Sharif also, the meaning of the Quran Sharif also has to come alive. And the second thing he said, unfortunately, it is the infighting of Muslims. That this has led to the downfall of Muslims. When Sheikh Ulim passed away Hazrat Madni said this is the mission we will continue with to bring alive the Quran Sharif and therefore he started bringing up the taking up the effort of bringing Bakatib alive in every nook and corner of India together with that he took up this effort of on the political front to oust the British and this is a lengthy story on its own they, it was the Jabir Ulama Hind of that time that first made this call that for Islam to survive in this land, we'll have to oust the British. But in order to try and achieve this objective, they took in the Hindus as well, who were also wanting to achieve the same objective for their own reasons. Said, well, we'll have to join forces with them for the common purpose, but in this is the benefit of Islam and the Muslims, that the British are here to try and destroy everything. The British tried everything to try and silence him. They tried force, they tried bribery and corruption, which was their hallmark. Once one British agent came to him and he said to him that, look, this is a gift for you. What's this all about? What is this? How much is, what is this gift? He said, well, there were 40,000 rupees in it. We're talking about 40,000 rupees of that time would be perhaps 4 million now. He says, uh, what's, what's the reason for this? Why are you giving me this gift? He says, no, this is only this once off. But besides that, every month you'll get five, five and a half thousand rupees. Again, we're going back in that time. Where average person will earn a few hundred rupees for the month. It's five and a half thousand rupees. And what am I supposed to be doing? He says, no, you must, nothing, don't do anything. All you do is stop opposing the British. Stop opposing the British government 
and stop calling upon the Muslims to oust the British, that's all, nothing else. You sit quietly and do everything as what you want. This is the only thing we are asking. He said, you can take all your money and go. I will never rest till this British government has been ousted because they have brought all this destruction to the, the Muslims in this land and besides looting the land as well, he rejected all that obviously and they couldn't silence him with their money, they couldn't silence him with their force, whatever else they tried, they failed in all this. And sometime later, because he was without any kind of employment either, some madrasa needed somebody, they employed him for 150 rupees a month. And he took on this employment for 150 rupees a month. Here he was being offered 5,500 rupees a month just to keep quiet. But that was something that he could never do and he rejected that totally. In any case, he was then appointed the Sheikhul Hadith of Dalung Deoband. At the time when he was appointed, before he came in, there were 40 students in the final year. After he was appointed in that very year, the numbers started growing and by the time the end of that year came, there were already 200 students. And in a short time, in a few years, when at one stage in time, it was about maybe from 1345 to 1377, that period of time, there were about just over 6,000 graduates from Dalum Dioban. More than half of those graduates were his own direct students. Among his direct students, we took some of the names in our country, as Abdullah Sahib, in Johannesburg, Mawlana Yusuf Pandor Sahib, there are a few others as well, some have passed on. So, his direct students, Hazrat Mufti Mahmoud Hassan Gangoi, great luminaries of their own time, there were many, many of them who spread Islam throughout the world. As far as his own work schedule was concerned, he was engaged in the khidmat of deen from morning till evening, teaching hadith in Dalum Dioban, conducting lectures and encouraging people. Besides all this, his daily ma'amulat, his zikr, his tasbihat, his tahajjud, never got affected with all these occupations that he had. And at the time of tahajjud, it is mentioned in particular that after having performed his tahajjud every night, he would weep like as if a child had been spanked and he's weeping. That kind of weeping in his dua and begging from Allah wa ta'ala. This was the person that he was. As far as his... Inshallah, we'll just try and wrap up in another 5-10 minutes. Just one or two points, incidents from his qualities that he had, his selfless nature. There were many, many times when the rights used to break out in India, rights even between the Hindus and Muslims after the partition of India and Pakistan. There were numerous situations where rights broke out between Hindus and Muslims because the Hindus said the Muslims are now pack up. Where everybody's going to pack up and go. Many went away, they were massacred. More than half a million Muslims were massacred during the time of this partition. And many times when these riots would break out and Muhammad Nihamdali came to know something is happening, he would go into the thick of the situation to go and help whichever Muslims were now being persecuted or somebody's life was in danger. He would risk his own life to go and bring out the people and save them and bring them out of that difficulty. Once he was traveling on a train, there was a Hindu also traveling on the same, in the same coach. After some time that Hindu woke up to go to the toilet and he went to the toilet and before he even went, he was already back. He came back faster than he went. But they asked him what happened. So he said, no, I want to go to the toilet, but the toilet is in such a condition, I can't use it. So he didn't say anything. He, this person sat down. He also just sat down. Then he woke up and he just went like he's looking out of the window so that it doesn't become obvious what he is planning to do. And when this person now wasn't paying attention to him, he very quietly made his way to the toilet, went inside and closed the door. And after some time he emerged and he said to the person, no, I, I checked it, it's fine now. He didn't come back to say, I cleaned it. He said, no, I went and checked, now it's fine. The person went, he said, but it can't be. He went and saw for himself, it was completely cleaned out. Now can we imagine a trained toilet, people don't bother how they use it and what condition it might have been in and for who he is cleaning it. He's cleaning it for a Hindu. This too, you know, whatever he is, 
but it's also the makhluk of Allah Ta'ala. Allah forbid, if he dies without iman, then obviously it's obvious where he's going. But now there's still a chance something can work. He's Allah Ta'ala's makhluk. This was the level of self-sacrifice, the level of compassion for the people, for the makhluk of Allah Ta'ala in general. Unfortunately, despite all this that he did, but wherever there's a tree with fruit, then you get people throwing stones also. So he was also made the target of false accusations. He was called a traitor to the Muslims and whatnot, despite being a person who did so much for Islam and the Muslims. Just some of his great qualities in terms of his concentration in Salah, one aspect. Once they were traveling, they stopped at the station. So it was Salah time, everybody got down. They started performing the Salah. And then while they were busy with their Sunnats, the siren was blown or the whistle was blown, which was an indication the train is going to start leaving now. The other Satis, the other companions, they broke their Salah to quickly board the train because it started moving just now. So Badi Rahmatullahi very calmly continued with his Salah. Then he made Salam. He just made it in time and just boarded the train. So the others asked him, Brother, you should have broken your Salah and come. When we heard the whistle being blown, we all quickly came. You didn't break your Salah and come. So he calmly remarked that if I had heard the whistle, I might have broken my Salah also. And I thought, I didn't even hear that whistle. I didn't even know that you all ran. This was the extent of his concentration in his Salah. The Tahajjud Salah, we already said, mentioned that about it. That this is how he performed his Tahajjud Salah daily without fail. And this is the type of dua he used to make. There's another whole detail about his courage and patience. He was married first, his wife passed away, those siblings passed away, he got married for the second time. His second wife passed away, the one daughter from that wife passed away at the age of 14, another daughter passed away in infancy, then he got married for the third time. He was 50 years old when that wife passed away, two siblings from that marriage, two, two children from that marriage passed away. He got married for the fourth time. Allah Ta'ala's hukam, and can be imagined, a person goes through such a situation once in his life, it's sometimes such a situation that it shakes him for life. But he bore, and not just his wife, his children, child after child, and then the fourth child, fourth wife passed away also. Hazrat Shaykh al-Hadith, Rahmatullahi, once after his third wife passed away, once Hazrat Madni had come some months later, and he had come and spent some time in Sarampur. So as was his Mamul, Tahajjud time, he'd wake up, and then this was the way that he would cry in Tahajjud. This was, whether there was, before anybody passed away too, that was the way he used to cry. He was very, very informal with Hazrat Shaykh al-Hadith, Zakariya sahab, rahmatullahi So he heard how he is crying at the time of Tahajjud. So the next morning at breakfast, or rather at the time of Tahajjud, after he completed his dua, Hazrat Shaykh al-Hadith brought his one cup tea for him. And then he whispered in his ears, don't cry so much, you'll get married again. Just to lighten the situation up. So, but this was the way in which Allah Ta'ala put these situations, Allah's hikmat, Allah Ta'ala knows best, His wisdom. But He bore all this and took all this in His stride. Can be imagined. And despite all these conditions, He didn't waver one bit from the mission that He was on. He didn't waver one bit from the khidmat of deen that He was involved in. Finally, just one, one incident about his humility, that one of the special qualities he had was that he was very hospitable. After every dars of Bukhari Sharif, it was the last period of the morning, and thereafter would be lunch. He would stand up, many visitors would come, because this was a, such a central place. So they would come to just attend his lesson as well, just out of the sake of barakat. He would stand up and see any stranger. It was a standard thing. Anybody who is a stranger here would join me now for lunch. And he would take everybody along. If somebody had to say, no, I'm already invited somewhere, or I've come to somebody's place, very well, you may carry on. Somebody has got no arrangements made, it's standard, you join me for lunch. And at any given time, there were 20, 30 people in any meal on his Dasarhan. Muslims, Hindus also would come to his Dasarhan. And everybody was welcome. Once one person came on the Dasarhan, and he was very shabbily dressed, dirty, there were even lights falling off his hair. Now, the Madhi had not yet arrived at the Dasar Khan. The Khuddam had already laid everything out. Whoever had come, they seated themselves. This person came and sat down too. And the others saw the person. They all started shifting away. And he was sitting on one side. Nobody wanted to be too close to him. 
As Matni arrived, he saw the situation. So wherever he was going to be sitting, he called for this person, you come here. And he made him sit next to him like a person who is sitting with his close friend. And then after having eaten the food with him, he then helped him to wash his hands and then saw him off with a lot of respect. And in that time and in that process, several of the lice of this person's hair and body came onto his own clothes. He quietly and calmly then went away to his house and cleaned himself. But in this way, he treated even this guest, who everybody was shying away to even sit close to him. This was the kind of ikram he had for one and all. And as far as the adherence to Shariat and Sunnah is concerned, despite being at the forefront on the political level, often the political field is such a situation that many a times, many many principles of deen get compromised. The Sunnah is like sometimes completely compromised. People think that it is not possible to adhere to the Sunnah in such a situation. But his engagement on the political field, it was as if it was no different to the dars of Bukhari Sharif that was giving in Dalum Dioband. In terms of his adherence to Sunnah, adherence to the Shariat, he did not waver in any way from that situation. Eventually, the time came, and like anybody and everybody, one day has to leave this dunya. Rasulullah Allah had already said to him in the Quran Sharif before he had to leave the dunya, One day you will leave also. All of the Sahaba will also leave one day. Everybody will leave. Even the disbelievers will leave. You will leave, the disbelievers will leave. Day of Qiyamah, Allah Ta'ala will separate the good from the bad. In any case, his time came as well. But just the day before, the night before his demise, one of his students saw a dream. And in the dream he was blessed with the ziyarat of Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Just before that he's seeing in the dream that one person is saying that just have everything cleared, Nabi Salaam is coming. Then he sees Nabi Salaam coming, he's mounted on a horse and there's another horse coming which has no rider on it. So this person in the dream, the student is asking the person who had come first, he's saying, but why is there a second horse without any rider? So he asked Nabi Salaam, why is the second horse without any rider? Now this is a dream, but the dreams, Nabi Salaam in the hadith says, that the dream, a good dream, is a 146th portion of Nubuat, which has its own detailed explanation, which is academic discussion. Nevertheless, meaning good dreams, pious dreams, these are, they have messages in it, and it's a kind of glad hiding for a believer. In the dream, Nabi Salaam is saying, the second horse is for Hussein Ahmad. And the next morning he passed away. Hazrat Mawlana Yusuf Karan Saab of Cape Town, he also passed away not long ago. He, was, he had just gone to study in Deoban some months before this. So he was not a student of Muhammad directly, but he saw him. He perhaps sat in his company for a while sometimes. And he says that I was just moving towards the post office at that time to go and probably post one letter or whatever the case is. And while I was walking, suddenly there was this announcement made from the PA system of the masjid or whatever, and everywhere this announcement was being made, that says, Muhammadi Rahmatullah passed away. And this was, this news was just spreading like wildfire. He says, as this announcement was made, I just saw scenes of grief throughout the place, which I never saw in my life. Muslim or Hindu or anybody. It was like everybody's father passed away. He says, I somehow just made my way through and came to the post office itself. He says, I came to the post office to my astonishment that Hindu postmaster, he's sitting there with his head in his hands and he's crying uncontrollably. And he couldn't even serve me. And he says, well, I just, it was out of the grief of the passing of Muhammad because he did the selfless khidmat, though primarily the objective was for the protection of Islam and the Muslims, but he served everybody in the process. And he did that kind of khidmat and service, which was a means of such good for everybody in that land at that time. Obviously, the Muslims were the ones that benefited the most. But in any case, everybody else appreciated this, whoever was there. And this was the feeling that had passed at that time. Allah Tabarak wa Ta'ala give us this great, the, some, some iota of the qualities of these great personalities. They had given their whole life given everything for Allah wa ta'ala 
and it is the qurbani that they made, the sacrifices that they underwent, that today we have Islam alive in so many parts of the world. Because this was where it was still saved, and from there it went on. So there are many, many parts of the world where Islam moved from the Indian subcontinent. And had the British had their way at that time, Allah knows best what would have been the condition. We are therefore very deeply indebted to these personalities. They have done us a huge favor. We should be making dua for them. We should be remembering them in sometimes giving some sadaqah on their behalf, some isale sawab for them. And the main thing is to learn from their lives and emulate the lessons that they have taught us. May Allah Ta'ala give us a tawfiq. وآخر دعوانا الحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم لك الحمد كله ولك الشكر كله اللهم لا نحصي ثناء عليك أنت كما أثنيت على نفسك جزا الله عنا نبينا محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم بما هو أهله ربنا ولمنا أنفسنا وإن لم تغفر لنا وترحمنا لنكونن من الخاسرين اللهم افتح لنا بالخير واختم لنا بالخير واجعل عواقب أمورنا بالخير بيدك الخير إنك على كل شيء قدير ربنا تقبل منا إنك أنت السميع العليم وتب علينا يا مولانا إنك أنت التواب الرحيم اللهم إنا نسألك من خير ما سألك منه نبيك وحبيبك سيدنا محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم ونعوذ بك من شر ما استعاذك منه نبيك وحبيبك سيدنا محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم أنت المستعان وعليك البلاغ ولا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله العلي العظيم وصلى الله تعالى على خير خلقه سيدنا محمد وآله وصحبه معين والحمد لله رب العالمين